been forgetting to do this, but I'm going to be with uh, Dave Newell down here. And what's the name of your church, Dave? River of Life Church. It's here. We'll be, we'll be at his church on Sunday morning. And uh, do we have um, directions out at the pastor relations desk? Oh, it's on the screen. So right here it is. So that'll tell you where it is. Do we have a map or anything out at the pastoral relations? So we got a map out there. If, you want, if you're interested and want to come over there on Sunday morning, you're welcome to come, and that would be a blessing. Also, let me mention one last thing, that we have this meeting coming up on December the 31st, January 1st and 2nd, in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Biltmore Resort. It's a real fancy place. I've been mentioning this, and here is a brochure about it. And uh, this would be a great time for you to have a family vacation. They've, they've extended this special rate of $139. It normally starts at $300 and goes up to 1000 a night. And you can get in for 139 three days before and three days after. So that could be a total of nine days that you could be in this fancy resort at one of our Gospel Truth seminars. It'll be a great time. So you might want to get that. That would be a good time to leave Raleigh-Durham. And go to Arizona in January. That's a good time. Praise God. So we've been talking. I I used, first of all, out of Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, that mercy and truth have met each other and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And I was talking about how that these concepts really are totally opposites. That For God to have mercy on us, how could a just God ever have mercy on us? And I spent the first night talking about that. We talked about last night about the price that Jesus paid. And I've just basically been trying to establish that God is holy and just. You see that amplified and stated very clearly in the Old Testament in the way that He dealt with people. And there was judgment and there was punishment and people had to toe the line. And if they got out of line, the wrath of God fell on them. Sad to say, a lot of New Testament Christians have taken the Old Testament examples and have just brought them straight into our relationship and think that this is the way that God still is. But everything changed when Jesus came. Jesus was like a lightning rod that brought all of God's wrath, not on you, but on Him, all of it. And there isn't any wrath left. And God literally has changed the way that He deals with individuals and the way that He deals with nations, the way that He deals with the whole world through Jesus. Jesus paid a price and the sins of the entire world have already been dealt with. Look at this verse over in 1 John chapter 2. And if you're familiar with the book of 1 John... He made radical statements in the first chapter talking about how that we are not supposed to be living in sin and if anybody says that they don't have sin, that they've deceived their own self. And He makes all these radical statements and then in chapter 2 verse 1 he says, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Boy, that's a radical statement. This is saying that Jesus isn't the propitiation, that means the atoning sacrifice for Christians, people who He knew were going to get saved only, but Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world. Sin... This is a radical statement. Most of you can recognize this, but just in case you don't, I'll tell you. 
This is a radical statement that sin is a non-issue with God. God has already paid for the sin of the whole world. He is not on people's case about the way they're acting. According to John chapter 16, you might, I referred to this yesterday, but let me just turn over here and read this quickly. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus, well, in verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you. That means it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Did you know most people would rather have Jesus in his physical body here than they'd rather have the Holy Spirit? But Jesus said, it's actually to your advantage for you to have the Holy Spirit. It's better to have the Holy Spirit working here in the earth than it is to have me in my physical body. Most people wouldn't think that way. And one of the reasons is because we haven't fully appreciated what the Holy Spirit has done. We think that the Holy Spirit's the one that's making you miserable. I bet you every one of you have heard somebody stand up in church and say, well, I was doing this and God told me to give, but I wouldn't do it. And I resisted. And finally, the Holy Spirit just made me so miserable. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't get over it. And Holy Spirit made me give this. And they stand up and give. And everybody claps. And I think, what a sorry testimony that God had to pressure you into something. People will say, well, the Holy Spirit was on my case. I'm so convicted about it. I've been an adulterer. I've done this. And, and people are crediting the Holy Spirit with the one who is making them feel bad about all of these things. I've got an entire tape set on this entitled The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit. This verse says that when He is come, the Holy Spirit, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What sin? The singular sin, verse 9 says, of sin because they believe not on me. The sin that the Holy Spirit, the sin, singular, not plural, the sin that the Holy Spirit is reproving people of is the sin of not believing on Jesus, not trusting in Jesus. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the one that's making you feel condemned and miserable. Man, I could get plumb off the track and preach on that. I'm not going to do that. I've got an entire tape series on that. You need to go get that if you want to hear it. But that is a powerful, powerful truth. The Holy Spirit is not here to nail you over how sorry you are, but rather He's just here to deal with you one thing about believing on Jesus. And there's five instances here in these 14th, 15th, 16th chapter of John where the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus. He will bring things to your remembrance whatsoever I have spoken. He will reveal Jesus. He will take of mine and He will show it unto you. The Holy Spirit gives revelation of Jesus. He is not here to reveal your sin. He's here to reveal Jesus to you. And yet many people today are attributing the work of the devil and at the very least the, worst of a, the work of a defiled conscience to the Holy Spirit. And because of this, the Holy Spirit's got a bum rap. He gets criticized and blamed for things that he didn't do. And people don't understand how important it is. But the Holy Spirit is the one who encourages you and builds you up. You need the ministry of the Holy Spirit and it's actually better than having Jesus in his physical body here. That's quite a statement. The positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we have been conditioned through religion today to embrace this sin consciousness and this sense of unworthiness and to go around feeling unworthy. And we've been taught that that somehow or another is humble. You know, it's a similar type of thing when Jesus came to John the Baptist and wanted to be baptized. 
And John looked at him and had revelation that this is the Messiah. And he says, I have need to be baptized of you. And you're asking me to baptize you? And Jesus says, go ahead, John, and do it. Because it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. Did you know John wasn't worthy in just his physical, natural self to do that. But he needed to do it to fulfill the will of God. And it actually would have been pride on his part for him to refuse to do it because you are mightier than I am. I have no right to be baptizing you. It would have been pride on his part. And let me just say that the way that we have been taught this false humility, this sin consciousness where, oh, I'm just like an old sinner saved by grace. God, I'm nothing. It's pride. It's arrogance. You are exalting your own opinion. You are going by your own feelings instead of what the Word of God says. If you take the things that I was ministering last night, that Jesus has already paid for all of our sin and has taken all of the wrath of God and that we are now the righteousness of God, it's humility to stand there and say, I am righteous. I am clean. I am pure. God loves me. And to minister to yourself that way. Those are strong statements. You know, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was get over sin consciousness. And I'm still in the process. I'm not saying I've arrived, but I've left, praise God. And I've made progress. And, I, and getting over a sin consciousness and an unworthiness feeling is probably the most important thing, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And what I want to do this morning, I, I'm going to just give you, a, this is, I'm going to condense like six hours worth of teaching into one hour. And I'm going to give you a lot. And I'm going to share a bunch of things that I've got in a lot more detail out there. I've got this teaching, Spirit, Soul, and Body. I've got you've already got it and a bunch of my books and teachings. But I just want to give you an overview of this. And what this did, it totally changed me. Because I had this experience where I knew that God loved me when I didn't deserve to be loved. I experienced that. And I knew it, but I couldn't reconcile my brain to it. I couldn't understand how a holy God could love an unholy me. And it just bothered me and I struggled. And if I hadn't have gotten some of these questions answered, I can guarantee you I'd have never been standing here today ministering the Word of God. I'd have never been doing what I'm doing. I would have lost the benefit of God touching my life if I hadn't have gotten these truths. And I think that there's a lot of people that, just like I was ministering last night about how Jesus paid it all, They've seen that at one time, but they can't maintain it. Over a period of time, they go back and they... Let me just say it this way. I'm struggling to get this out, but I'm going to get it out one way or the other. The way that I saw this was that I was having problems because I knew me after the flesh. I didn't know me in the Spirit. Look at this verse over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I use verse 17 a lot because it says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. But look at the 16th verse. He says, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. You know, that's not probably one of your favorite scriptures, but that is a powerful passage of scripture. That's powerful. Saying we don't know anybody after the flesh. Most people do know people after the flesh. Most of you make snap judgments on the way a person looks, 
the way they groom themselves, the way they talk and stuff like this, and you immediately put people into categories. You think this person can't be any good. This person can't have anything that I want to learn. We judge on the flesh all of the time. Of course, prejudice is a great example of this. People reject certain people because of the color of their skin or prefer another person because of the color of their skin. And that's just totally uh, irrational. And yet people do stuff like this. Most people judge after the flesh. And let me just bring it down to the personal level. Most of you judge yourself after the flesh. Most of you know yourself based on what your physical body looks like, what you have, your experiences, what you've, what's gone on in the physical, emotional realm. But very few people know themselves in the spirit. You know, if I was to ask you, who are you? You could tell me your name. And I'd say, no, who are you? And you'd say, well, I'm a man or I'm a woman. And you'd tell me about your job or you'd tell me about your family or you'd tell me about your experiences. And you'd begin to describe all of these physical, natural things. But if I just kept probing, no, who are you at your root level? Who are you in Christ? Most people can't tell you. Most people don't know. I prayed with at least three or four people down here this morning that in a sense, I was rebuking them. They were just acting like, oh, would you please pray for me? I'm just so pitiful. And I said, you don't know who you are. You've got God living on the inside of you. You've got the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Don't put up with this. Stir yourself up. Get angry. Do something. Satan doesn't have the power to make you sick. Satan doesn't have the power to defeat you. Satan doesn't have any... You have to cooperate. I was here just trying to get people to see who they were in Christ. Most people do not have a clear view of who they are in Christ. And again, I go back to this verse. I already used this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The latter part of that verse, verse 7 says... Uh, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God sees other people and He sees you differently than you see yourself. And see, I had this experience where God's love was poured out in my life and I knew intuitively that God loved me and I knew it had nothing to do with how good I was because it was at my very worst when this happened. For the first time in my life, I finally realized I was a zero with the rim knocked off, that I was nothing. I realized that I was a hypocrite and I repented of all of this. And at my very worst, this supernatural love of God came over me for four and a half months. I was just gone someplace. I was caught up in the presence of God. And it was wonderful, but it messed with my mind because how could a holy, just God love me? I knew He did, but I didn't understand why He did, how He could. I didn't love me. How could God love me? And the whole thing is because I looked on the outside. I looked at my physical body. I looked at my mind and my emotions, what most of us call the personality part. And I didn't like a lot of the things that I saw. At the time the Lord touched me, I was an introvert. I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I was just, I mean, painfully shy, which I've got that little book on self-centeredness, the root of all grief, and it'll show you that shyness and timidness is nothing but pride. That's what it is. And I was just, I couldn't understand. God, I don't love me. How can you love me? And here's what God used to change my life. In the same way that we don't know any man after the flesh, you shouldn't know yourself after the flesh. Because in the next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And the Lord began to show me that I had been changed on the inside. My spirit was completely new. Verse 18 says, and all things are of God. In your body, you aren't changed yet. You know, if you were fat before you got saved, you're still going to be fat after you get saved. Your body doesn't instantly change at salvation. And your soul isn't changed yet. That's your personality part, your mind, your will, and your emotions. If you were stupid before you got saved, you're still going to be stupid after you get saved. You don't instantly change your mind. You don't instantly lose your your memory and your emotions. You don't instantly lose your identity and all of the things that have gone on on the inside of you. Your body and your soul are still the same. But the Bible says that when you're in Christ Jesus, old things are passed away. So by process of elimination, this means that the change at salvation takes place in your spirit. And how do you know what's going on in your spirit? See, most people just think, well, if I, if I was changed in my spirit, if I had the power of God, if the anointing of God was in me, I'd know it. How would you know it? Well, we just assume it's the same thing. You know if you're hot or if you're cold. Your body constantly lets you know if you're hot or cold. You don't have to, you know, if I said, uh, are you okay in here? Do we need to turn the air conditioning up or whatever? You wouldn't have to say, well, let me go study and I'll come back to you in a week and tell you. You just know whether you're hot or you're cold. You know if you're in pain or whatever. And in the emotional realm, you know instantly if you're happy or if you're sad. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to go study it. You just Your sense knowledge is constantly telling you these physical and emotional things. You're constantly in touch with that realm. But Jesus said in the third chapter of the book of John when he was talking to Nicodemus, he says, that which is born of the spirit is spirit and that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And if you study that out, what he's saying is spirit is spirit, flesh is flesh. They don't interact. You cannot discern what's happening to you in the spirit man through any physical, emotional way. You aren't in touch with your spirit. Spirit is spirit, flesh is flesh. If you want to know if you're hot, you just instantly know that. If you want to know if you're happy or sad, you instantly know that. But do you want to know, are you righteous? You can't feel if you're righteous. You don't know these kind of things. How do you know? John 6, 63 says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so God's word is spirit. It also says in James chapter 1 that whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty is like a man looking into a glass, a mirror, and he beholds his natural face and sees himself. If you want to see what you're like in the physical, you go look in a mirror. If you want to see what you're like in the spiritual, you go look in the Word of God. And the Word of God is a spiritual mirror. And it tells you what has happened to you in the spirit. And see, the problem I was having, I knew by experience that God loved me. But then I went and looked in the mirror, the physical mirror. And I thought, why does God love me? And I searched my emotions and I saw attitudes that were wrong and fear and doubt and unbelief and these kind of things. And I knew that that was contrary to what God wanted. And I thought, God, why do you love me? How could you love me? How could you be pleased with me when I see all of these imperfections? But see, the difference was, the Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is a spirit. 
And those who worship Him must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. God is looking at you and me in the Spirit, man. And in the Spirit, you're different than what you see in the mirror. You're different than what you know in your emotions and in your personality. You are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And the problem is most of us don't know who we are. And we are looking at ourselves on the outside and we're displeased. And so we think that God is looking at us the way we see ourselves and think, how could God be pleased with me? But God is a spirit and he's beholding you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are a completely brand new being that has been created in righteousness and true holiness. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. This is a verse about who you are in the spirit. And again, this is like the spiritual mirror. If you want to see who you are, this is what the mirror is showing you. And you know, sometimes when you look in a mirror, physical mirror, you don't feel like what you see. But you just have to go by what you see. You know, I just turned 60 and I don't feel 60 in my emotions, but you know what? I'm looking 60. (laughs) Things have changed. I look different. I was looking at some pictures when I was in the army at 18 and you know what? I've changed. I don't feel like I've changed, but I have. And you know what? You just, it's just the way that it is. And so sometimes, you know, if you feel like your hair is uncombed, how can you tell if your hair is combed? You can't go by how you feel. Right now, I I don't know if my hair's combed or not. I hope my hair's combed. But I couldn't go by how it feels. What I'd have to do is go look in a mirror and then i just take what I see in the mirror and i take appropriate action. You know what? Some of you say, well, I just don't feel righteous. Who cares how you feel? You go look in the mirror. You go look at what the Word says. And if this says it, well then, you know what? I felt like my hair is uncombed, but it's not. I can tell it's combed. It looks okay. And so you'd go by it. Well, you you may not feel righteous, but you go to this mirror and you hold it up. And what does it say? In verse 24, Ephesians 4, 24, it says, um, Wherefore putting, uh, excuse me, that's verse 25. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. When you got born again and you became this new creature, you were created righteous and truly holy. That's what the spiritual mirror says. And whether you feel that way or not, this is the way it is. You were created. Notice the wording. You didn't, you aren't growing. A seed of righteousness wasn't planted in you and you were becoming more and more righteous. You were created righteous. You are 100% righteous, 100% holy in your spirit. You were born again that way. And remember that God is a spirit. God is seeing you in the spirit. And so when you come before God, you say, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm such a failure. Oh God, have mercy on me. And you know what? He's looking at you in the spirit and he says, perfect, righteous, holy, pure. How can two walk together except they be agreed? When you come before God talking about what a failure you are and how bad everything is and oh God, look at this. It just shows that you are in the flesh. You aren't in the spirit. And to really worship God, you must worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you are coming and complaining about how sorry you are, you aren't in spirit and therefore you aren't really worshiping God. You're just religious. 
To really connect with God, you've got to start going by what the Word of God says. And you were created righteous and truly holy. You know, you can go into a great definition of what righteous is, but a little simple layman's definition is it just means right standing with God. You're just in right standing. You're right with God. You're righteous. There is no more any sin. Your spirit is perfect. It's pure. It's holy. You were created righteous and truly holy. I go to churches all the time and I hear people say things like, Oh God, make me holy. And I want to say, get born again. (laughs) And yet they are born again and they're praying that God would make them righteous. I go to churches and they sing these songs about, Oh Lord, create in me a clean heart, Oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's the prayer that David prayed in Psalms chapter 51. And people sing that and put it to music. And Christians are singing that. It's terrible. Somebody said, well, it's scripture. It's Old Testament scripture before people were born again. And when you're saying, creating me a clean heart, that's what happened when you got born again. You were given a brand new heart, a clean heart. You were created righteous and truly holy. And for you to say, take not your Holy Spirit from me, that's a slap in the face of Jesus when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll send you a comforter and he will remain with you forever. Oh, but I don't feel you. And so we say, oh God, come and meet with us today. That's a slap in the face of Jesus. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet you're praying that he would be with you. And then as you leave, you say, God, go with us as we leave this place. It's a slap in the face of Jesus. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You're just going by your feelings. You don't feel a goosebump. You don't feel God. And so you think, well, God wasn't within a hundred miles of that place. Truth is, He never leaves you nor forsake you. He's always there. You're always righteous. And you've got to get to where you base your life on what the truth of the Word of God says, who you are in the Spirit and not in the flesh. In the Spirit, you are forgiven of all sin. All sin. You are righteous and holy and pure. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness, In the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Some people have tried to interpret that as well. We're living as holy as Jesus. And so because we live holy and we never make any mistakes, we're going to have boldness when we stand before Him to be judged. Give me a break. Anybody who thinks that you are living holy enough that you're going to stand before God in your own self-righteousness and be confident because you've done everything right, you are deceived. Nobody's going to do that. That's not talking about that you are living in your actions and in your thoughts and in your emotions as perfect and pure as Jesus. This is talking about that in the Spirit, that part of you that was born again, that was created in righteousness and true holiness. That part of you is identical to Jesus. As Jesus is, so are you in this world, not are you going to be in the other world. That's not true of your physical body yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption. We are going to receive a glorified body. Your physical body is not like Jesus yet. Your soul isn't like Jesus yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't understand all things yet. 
But there is coming a time that our soul is going to know all things, even as also it's known. But that hasn't happened yet. So by process of elimination, your physical body's not changed. Your soul isn't changed. It doesn't know all things yet. You still have wrong feelings and emotions. But in the spirit, you're perfect. In the spirit, you are like Jesus. You are identical to Jesus. This is the reason that the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind as Jesus, because he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's not talking about you suffering in the flesh. That's talking about Jesus, the one who suffered in the flesh, has now ceased from sin, and we are supposed to have his mind. We're supposed to be thinking because we've been created just like him. In the spirit, I'm identical to Jesus because it is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been sent into my heart crying, Abba, Father, Galatians chapter 4. And if somebody says, well, I don't have that, well, then you ought to get born again because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that um, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. When you got born again, God sent the spirit of Jesus to live on the inside of you. You were created in righteousness and true holiness. You are identical to Jesus. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. And Jesus is not an old sinner saved by grace. Jesus is not a filthy rag. Jesus is the Son of God. You are identical to Him. He gave you His righteousness, His power. He gave you His authority. You have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. You have an unction. That means a special anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. People think, well, the Bible is so hard to understand. I don't know all things. Well, your little peanut brain doesn't know all things. But your spirit, the born-again part of you, knows all things. This is the reason that speaking in tongues is so important. Because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, that when you pray in tongues, your spirit is praying. The part of you that has the mind of Christ that knows all things. And then 1 Corinthians 14, 13 says all you have to do is interpret. Pray that you interpret. So when you are in trouble, start letting the part of you that has the mind of Christ speak in tongues and then pray and say, God, show me what I'm saying. Give me the answer to this problem. Show me what I need to do. And boom, God gives you the answer. Man, that's powerful. And yet most people, we just sing these songs about, oh, Father, further along we'll know all about it. Further along we'll understand why. I'm just a poor wayfaring pilgrim. And we magnify and amplify and embrace and cherish this flesh that is wrong and that makes mistakes and that is limited and we don't live from our spirit. Most Christian songs, the reason I love Charlie and Jill's song so much is because, see, we sang about the blood of Jesus. We glorified God. We praised Him for what He's done. But most Christian songs today are just singing about how tough it is and how bad it is, and they're, they're ministering from the flesh, talking about the problems of the flesh. It's just like Christian country and Western music. Griping and complaining about how bad everything is. It's the truth. Most Christian music is no good. It's glorified. It'll depress you. I've actually had the Christian station on and had them come on with some of these terrible songs. And I've turned it off to a secular station and listened to it and thought, at least I know that that's wrong. It's obvious that that's wrong. This is sneak up on me over here. 
It's bad. It's, it's bad stuff. Man, you are awesome in your spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says that he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And the Greek word for one there is hes, H-E-I-S, and it means a singular one to the exclusion of another. It doesn't mean that you are similar. It doesn't mean that you're a little chip off the old block. It means that you are identical. Ounce for ounce, molecule for molecule, if there are such things in the spirit realm, you are identical to Jesus. This is why Paul said it's no longer me that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Christ lived on the inside of him. It was Christ. And Paul didn't have something that you and I don't have. We got the same Holy Spirit. We got the same new birth. Everything the same. The only thing that's different is he had a revelation of who he was. He was living from his spirit man. Whereas most of us are just talking about our flesh. Most of us are dealing with things. Leaning unto our own understanding. Trying to figure it out. Instead of living from the spirit man. Somebody's thinking, well how do you get there? Through the word. This spiritual mirror. You look in it and you take what it says. And start basing your life on what the word of God says. Instead of what you see. The word of God says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. That I am blessed with all spiritual blessings. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I am blessed. I'm not going to be blessed. I am blessed. He hath blessed us. It's already been done. I'm blessed. There's times that I don't feel blessed. There's times I don't look blessed. But you know what? I'm always blessed. I'm always blessed. And it's up to me to remind myself and to speak that. If you ever ask me how I am, I'm going to tell you I'm blessed. And I've had times when people have come up and said, no, I want to know how you really are. And I say, I'm really blessed. Amen. (laughs) No, I want to know how you feel. And I said, I don't care how I feel. This is what the Word of God says. And I base my life on what God's Word says. And not what I feel. And I know some of you think, you are weird. I think you're weird. I think you're weird to have one third of you wall to wall Holy Ghost. One third of you identical to Jesus and you'd be sitting there sucking your thumb talking about how bad life is and wondering about how you could ever make it and you're afraid of the economy and you're afraid of what's going to happen as if God doesn't live on the inside of you. That's weird. You don't have a revelation of who you are in Christ. I'm telling you brothers and sisters, you need to see that God has changed us. When you got born again, it's not just you ascribing to some doctrine and that's the only difference between you and a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or anybody else. No, you became God-possessed. You got changed. You became a new creature. God moved on the inside of you. God literally lives on the inside of you. And he's not there in just seed form. And some people have grown and developed strong. And other. No, when God comes in, he's full grown. Your spirit is as mature, as holy, as powerful, as anointed as Jesus is. Under the old covenant, see, there was nothing like this. The Holy Spirit would come upon people and touch them, but he would come and go. And that's the reason that Elijah had a certain portion of the spirit. But Elisha came along and got a double portion. 
And in Pentecostal churches, I've been in Pentecostal churches where they have double portion night and come forward and we're going to lay hands on you and they're going to take this special oil that they got from Israel and they're going to pour it over you and you're going to get a double portion of the Holy Spirit. That can't happen in the new covenant because of his fullness have all we received in grace upon grace. That's John chapter 1 verse 16 or 17. You've got the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in you bodily. They didn't have the fullness. So you could get twice of a portion, but you can't get twice of everything. You have the fullness of God. You can't get more of God. You can't get a double portion of the Holy Spirit. You can't get a greater anointing. You can release a greater anointing. You could use more of what you've got. But it's not your spirit that's growing and developing. It's not God that's giving you more power and more anointing. You've already got everything. The problem is this little peanut brain doesn't know what we've got. And as we renew our mind, we can release more of God. We can flow in more of the Holy Spirit. We can release more power and anointing. But you can't get any more power and anointing. There's a major difference here. It changed my life when I realized that, God, I don't need more of you. You need more of me. You need me to be more yielded and submitted, my mind to be more renewed. But man, when I realized that I've got the power of God on the inside of me, it made a difference in my attitude. Instead of me approaching my problems as, oh God, I'm powerless. Oh God, there's nothing I can do. God, if you don't do a miracle, we're dead in the water. Uh, And you start begging and pleading with God and coming emotionally like, God, wouldn't you please move? And you start begging God. You know what that's saying? That's saying that you're powerless. God, the doctor says, I'm going to die. There's nothing I can do about it. Would you please move? You've already gotten in unbelief. You've already denied. You aren't approaching God in the spirit. You aren't coming in who you are in Christ. If you were thinking about who you are in Christ, you'd look at cancer and laugh. No big deal. No big deal. Man, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I've got the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living on the inside of me. Why should I be afraid of cancer or AIDS or anything else? Man, that's powerful. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Are you still in the book of Ephesians? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins to pray a prayer. If you were praying a prayer that was going to be read 2,000 years in the future, what would your prayer be like? I can tell you what most Christians' prayers would be like because I've heard a lot of Christians pray. And it would be like, Oh God, pour out your Spirit. Oh God, move. Oh God, do a new thing. Oh God, just move by your power. Oh God, touch these people. Oh God, send revival. It would all be pleading with God to do something. Here's how Paul prayed. He says, Lord, open their eyes to what they already have. Show them what they've got. Help them to realize that they have the same power that raised Christ from there. He didn't pray and ask God to give them anything new except a revelation of what they already had. Amen. Totally different. Most Christians are approaching God as a loser, as a beggar, as defeated. I'm powerless. Oh God, this cancer is bigger than me. This finances is bigger than me. This problem is bigger than me. God, I can do nothing. Would you please move? The truth is that God has placed himself on the inside of you and all of his power and authority and you need to start by humbling yourself 
and saying, I can do all things through Christ. I've got the same power in me that raised Christ from the dead. And you've got to take your authority and approach that thing like a winner instead of a loser. You've got to start walking in the Spirit instead of in the flesh. So he prayed here in the 14th verse of the first chapter. Or let's go down to verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. All he's praying is that they'd get revelation, wisdom about what God has already done. In verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. He's praying that you would get a revelation of the power that you've got, the exceeding greatness of his power. According to, the word according to means in proportion to or to the degree of the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ. He's saying, God, open up their eyes and let them see that they have the same power that you released when you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You've already got that power. And yet we approach God as, oh God, I'm powerless. God says, you've got the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You're saying, I don't have any power. God, we're looking unto you. Somebody's wrong. And it's us. It's not God. We go back to Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles or 1 Chronicles chapter 20, where the armies came against him and he assembled all the people and he said, Lord, our eyes are unto you for we have no power against this great host. And we quote that. And there are great things to learn from that in the sense that he turned to God and depended upon God. But it's different in our day. Jehoshaphat didn't have any power. We do have power. And for you to say, oh God, we have no power against cancer. We have no power against this financial thing. Oh God, there's nothing we can do. It's wrong for you to say that because you have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwelling on the inside of you. And it's wrong for you to approach it as if you have no power and you just need a miracle from God. God's already put that miracle on the inside of you. You've already got the power of God. You know, the church that we go to, they have this big Easter celebration. It's like a 10,000 member church and they put on these major deals. And they, anyway, it's a long story, but when um, Jesus, you know, was uh, being tempted on the mount, they had a person that personified Satan. And he came and acted like Satan and tempted Jesus. And then every time that the crowd was yelling at Jesus, this same person dressed in black was always there. And it was showing you that Satan was inspiring a lot of these criticisms and things. And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, they had this tomb and they had this big rock and they had this huge explosion that you could feel and all of this smoke and these lights and everything. And then when the smoke cleared away... Uh, they had Satan standing there pushing on the stone trying to stop the resurrection. And then this huge explosion and all this smoke. And when the smoke cleared, here was the devil laying on his back. The stone was on top of him and Jesus was standing on top of the stone. (laughs) I like that. 
And my point is that the power it took to raise Jesus from the dead was more than the power that it took to create the worlds. There wasn't a devil that was withstanding the creation of the world. There was no opposing force. But at the resurrection of Jesus, Satan had the entire force, all of his power against that. And yet they couldn't keep Jesus being raised from the dead. So raising Jesus from the dead is the greatest manifestation of the power of God that the world has ever seen. And yet you have raising from the dead power on the inside of you. It's not out there that you've got to pray down. And this has developed all kinds of doctrines that the demons are blocking our prayers from getting through to God. And we've got to clear a hole over Raleigh-Durham so that our prayers can get up to God. We've got to have a clear heaven. I was just at a meeting over in Belgium where they were trying to get a clear heaven. And it's just silly. Somebody, whoa. In Daniel chapter 10, there was the prince of Persia power that was blocking the prayers and that there was this war going on. But that was in the old covenant before God moved to earth. God isn't out there. Your prayers aren't trying to get past these demons through the heavenly places. God lives right here. The Bible says in your belly is where the spirit flows from. John chapter 7. Some of you look like you got more of the spirit than others, but you don't. God's right here. This is why you bow your head when you pray. You say, Father. This whole thing of, man, your prayers didn't get above the ceiling. You don't need your prayers to get above the nose. God's right here. The resurrection power is right here. And we got so many silly doctrines in the body of Christ today because people don't know that we already have God on the inside of us. This will really bless some of you. But the way that we're praying for revival today is unscriptural. Oh, God, send revival. And we're just sitting here twiddling our thumbs, waiting on God and wondering why God doesn't do something. If God wanted to, he could turn this nation back to God. And so what we do is get a million people, two million people to pray and put more pressure on God. And people will cry and they'll pray, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 64 or 66, rend the heavens and come down. Oh, God, just come down. God rent the heavens and came down through Jesus. He now lives on the inside of you. You've got the resurrection power of God on the inside. You've got revival on the inside of you. And God isn't going to send revival from the heavens and just touch people while you're in your prayer closet praying. If you want revival, go out and take this raising from the dead power and raise somebody from the dead. And you'll have all the revival you can handle. I can guarantee you. Go out and start seeing the blind eyes open. Instead of being afraid and embarrassed and, and afraid that you're going to offend somebody, when people at your job are talking about how terrible everything is, get up and give a testimony and stand your ground. Pray for somebody who's sick and see their blind eyes open, their deaf ears open, and you'll have revival. But man, we're in our prayer closet praying and begging God to save our neighbor, but we wouldn't talk to him. We wouldn't witness to them because we might be rejected. Somebody might be offended. Somebody might call you a religious fanatic. So you just stay in your prayer closet and you pray and cry crocodile tears, but never release the power of God that's on the inside of you. That's useless. Anybody miss that? Was that too subtle? (laughs) It's a deception. I believe that a lot of the prayer for revival is inspired by the devil. 
The devil loved to get you in your prayer closet praying and begging God to move when the truth is God is crying out to you through me for you to move. You go out and do something. Go touch somebody. We're asking God to do what He told us to do. He says, these signs will follow you. If you're in your prayer closet, what good does it do to get your shoes healed? (laughs) To get your clothes healed? Man, you need to be out there in the marketplace. You need to be witnessing and talking to somebody. That's where the miracles need to take place. We're praying for God to pour out His Spirit, but they only flow through people. Find out who you are and get out and start doing something. Go in and touch people. We are so external conscious. We're so conscious of our limitations and of the way we look and the way we feel. And yet we don't know who we are in Christ. And so we're approaching our workplace and people are dying and people are saying terrible things and we don't ever say anything. We go home and pray about it. Man, that's wrong. You need to recognize who you are in Christ. And you need to let who you are in Christ become your dominant way of being and talking. And people ought to be able to see God in you. You ought to get this out of the spirit and into your soulish realm where it affects your emotions and your thinking and your talk. And then it affects your walk and you start seeing miracles happen and things happen. And brothers and sisters, it's all up to you. This is what the Bible it, uh, in just a real capsulated form tells you the whole Christian life. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body... A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word transformed is a Greek word metamorpho, that we get metamorphosis from. If you want to change like a little worm becomes this beautiful butterfly, it was earthbound, now it can fly. If you want to change like that, if you want to see transformation, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've already got it in your spirit. You are identical to Jesus. You have the spirit of His Son living on the inside of you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. But it has to flow through your brain. Your brain is like a valve that can either release or stop the flow of the Spirit of God. And if you are carnally minded, Romans chapter 8 verse 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Carnal mindedness doesn't mean that you have to be a terrible sinner. You have to be out here into pornography and homosexuality or something else. Carnal mindedness just means of the five senses. That's what the word carnal means. It means the flesh as stripped of skin. Just the meat is what the word literally means. That's, we use the word chili con carne. Did you know the word carne comes from the same word as carnal? And it's talking about chili with meat is what it's talking about. When you're saying somebody's carnally minded, you're calling them a meathead. You're just physical oriented. All you're doing is you're, you're, you're trying to overcome this sickness in the natural with your own physical power instead of understanding that you've got the power that raised Christ from the dead living on the inside of you. You're trying to deal with an economic recession by listening to CNN. Mercy. Lord, have mercy on you. If that's where you're getting your information from, 
And you're dealing with things from only the human, natural standpoint instead of recognizing that my God will supply all of my need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And so you have fear and you have all of these things because you're carnal. To be carnally minded is death. It didn't say carnal mindedness tends towards death. For certain types of people, it produces death. 90% get death when they think carnal. It just says carnal mindedness equals death. But spiritual mindedness equals life and peace. Again, spiritual mindedness, John 6, 63, is the words that I speak unto you. They are spirit and they are life. If you base your life on who you are in Christ, what the word says, that spiritual mirror, you are spiritually minded. And if you're thinking according to the word of God, all it produces is life and peace. So if you've got something other than life and peace, you're something other than spiritual minded. You're carnal. Carnal doesn't mean you're a bad person. You can be a very sweet person. You can be a very nice person. I had a woman up here this morning that I forgot now what I prayed for. But anyway, the word was that you are such a nice person. You're nice to everybody. And her husband said, that's true. She is. She's nice to everybody. And I said, that's the problem. I said, you know what? You're even nice to the devil. You don't fight. God gave all of us a temper. You probably may not have it right. (laughs) The way I heard that amen, but... a temper. The sad thing is most of us use it against people. We aren't fighting flesh and blood. You aren't supposed to be angry with people, but God told us to hate evil. Hate evil. If you hated sickness, if you hated disease, if you said, I will not be this way, I refuse to be this way, I guarantee you, you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But there are some people that are nice even to the devil. Oh, I just, I can't get angry. I can't get upset. I'm just going to roll with the punches. Well, then you're going to die. You have to resist the devil. You need to get angry at the devil, not at people. You need to know what you have and you need to get an attitude to where you aren't going to put up with this stuff. You aren't going to let the devil steal from you. And most Christians think, I couldn't be that way. Why? Because first of all, you think, well, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. I'm an old worm. We haven't realized who we are. We feel it's arrogant. And if all you're doing is standing in your flesh, well, then yes, it is arrogant to try and come against all of these things in just human power. But I'm telling you, you aren't just human. If you've been born again, one third of you is wall to wall Holy Ghost. People will often quote first, uh, uh, John chapter 14 or John chapter 15, I believe it's verse 5, where Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And that's absolutely true. Without Jesus, I can do nothing. Without Jesus, I am nothing. But I'm never without Jesus. You need to acknowledge that in the flesh, just in my physical body, I'm no different than anybody else. But you know what? In Christ, I am different. In Christ, I'm a world overcomer. In Christ, there is no sickness, disease that can even come close to matching the power that I have on the inside of me. And I'm both of these people. 
I have a physical part of me that has not yet been glorified and that is susceptible to making mistakes and all of these things, but I've got a spiritual part of me that is complete. As Jesus is, so am I right here in this world. One third of my salvation is over. I'm as perfect and complete in my spirit right now as I'll be a million years from tonight in eternity. My spirit is already complete. It's already perfect. And I've got to acknowledge that. And when you acknowledge that, it gives you a different attitude. You face problems differently. You don't worry about things the way people that don't understand this worry. It makes all of the difference. And I tell you, once you understand this, it just changes everything. Again, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You know, if I was to go to your house and see your garden, I could tell you what you planted by what's growing in it. I don't have to be there when you plant your garden. I don't have to sit there and see what the, the little seed packet said. I can tell by what's growing in your garden what you planted. I can tell what's growing in your life, whether you've been spiritually minded or carnally minded. I can tell you by the results that you're getting. Spiritual mindedness produces life and peace. Carnal mindedness produces death. And you can be a very nice person, a very good person, a very moral person. You could be sweet and kind and be as carnal as you could possibly be and it'll produce death. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. I'm telling you, this changed my life. To under, I had this experience where I knew God loved me, but I couldn't understand how God loved me, and I couldn't reconcile my mind to it. And the scripture says, Proverbs 23, 7, As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your life will go the direction of your dominant thought. And if I could not have explained and understood how a holy God could love an unholy me, then I would have lost it because my life would have gone the direction of my dominant thought. I would have eventually had that unworthiness short-circuit the power of God. And this was key. It was just like somebody stuck a key in my brain and unlocked it when I began to realize that I'm a new person in Christ and God is a spirit and He sees me in the spirit and God is just to fellowship with me in the Spirit. Because in the Spirit, I am His workmanship. I'm as holy and righteous as He is. It is His Spirit. The Spirit of His Son has been sent into me. And it changed my whole attitude. And now I can enter boldly into the very presence of God. Not only when I've done everything good, but to obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Not just in, when everything's going good. Man, that's awesome. And I know somebody's thinking, well, you know, I can accept that when I got born again, it was this way, but you don't know I've messed up so much since then. Come back tonight. And I'm going to show you how that this is an eternal position that never fluctuates based on your performance. When you got born again, you were created this way, and now you're sealed, and it never changes. The only thing that changes is your perception, not the reality of who you are in Christ. And as you think in your heart, that's the way you're going to be. So I'm not through, but we're going to quit. And we're going to come back tonight and 